everybody. Welcome to A French Village Podcast. I am here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Hello, Sarah Longwell. Uh, we get, we're getting your jailbreak this week. I am excited about it. You know, I knew this was coming and, uh, you know, I've been waiting for a jailbreak on the French Village uh, since the first episode. There's no point in having a Gestapo prison if you're not going to bust some people out of it. Can I just tell you, so when you were saying last week, you were like, uh, we're like, oh, they're going to do a, a jailbreak episode. I was like, mm, poor Ben, he's not going to get what he wants. Because I was like, I didn't remember any kind of jailbreak. Uh, and uh, because there's not, actually, it's not quite a jailbreak. Like I'd forgotten what happened. Uh, I, but I, I knew Anselm and Raul get out. Uh, or at least Anselm, because he's he remains a character. But I was like, couldn't remember what else happened. So anyway, it was like really fun to rewatch. Um, I think we'll call this episode the one without pockets. Or oh, I thought we should call it jailbreak exclamation mark. <laughs> uh, but it's fun. It's fun. One of the things about these this pair of episodes that's really fun is that in the run up to um, trying to get these guys out of prison is that like Larche has been kidnapped by the guys in the woods. So he's there. Marie is, you know, running the other resistance faction. So she's there. Uh, you know, they, um, Antoine and his people are there. Suzanne has now found Marie. So it's like a lot of our main characters now are together. And then there's parts in the later episode, you know. Once and they, Schwartz. Like, they've got Schwartz, Schwartz in there. Schwartz shows up. <laughs> and we got, uh, we've got the whole gang putting on a play. And we've got... <laughs> Um, I mean, the only ones who were not there, I miss Gustave um, uh, and, you know, Hortense. None of the bad people are there, of course. So it's kind of like good guys hang out and party in the woods and bad people fume at home because Hortense is, you know, on the rocks with Muller and, uh, you know, Janine's got some, you know, backroom deals going that Shasan doesn't know about. So, you know, it's like all the good guys, except Larche. Larche is not having such a good time, but the good guys are having a pretty good time in the woods. And uh, it's like, you know, Woodstock. And the, <laughs> the bad guys are like <laughs> stewing at home. It's kind of nice. Uh, it is. Um, it is. So, so, uh, the so we have our we have their or, you know Suzanne and and Marie basically have paired up uh, because they now have a mutual interest in breaking their son and uh, lovers respectively out of jail so they go to Antoine uh, to help their the our our main theater guy what's his name Claude Claude that's right Claude doesn't accuses Antoine of being a bit selfish doesn't want to do it. Uh, says Antoine's just doing it for the girl, which is also setting up this funny, uh, like, Antoine has a crush on Marie. It sort of looks like maybe Marie is not totally opposed to that particular arrangement. Uh, and, of course, Antoine is— By the is way, that's some age difference we got going there. Um, <laughs> you know, like we oh, commented on— Oh, it's the older on... woman and the younger man. Suddenly <laughs> you've got an issue with it, Ben? No, I don't, I don't have an issue with it. I just said you were so— in, uh, intent on noting it with Larche and Sarah, I think just for reciprocity's sake, we got to notice that there's a similar age difference here. 
there is a similar age difference. Uh, and I am, uh, I sort of, I don't quite know how to talk about this yet. Cause like it, you get into it later, but like, uh, I, I do think that there is like Antoine is, and Raul are like not that far apart in age. Uh, and I do think Marie's posture to Antoine, at least for a period of time is of, yes, this young man might have a crush on me. I'm used to young men having crushes on me. I'm not that interested in it. And then like right at the end, you sort of get that hint of like, maybe she is actually enjoying this flirtation with him. And I don't approve. I'll just, I'll just uh, say I So don't I just want to say, I, we are both taking exactly the same positions. We are both, uh, I totally approve. I think in the face of cosmic authoritarianism, uh, uh, everybody should do what makes them feel good that's mutually uh, desired. And I think Larche and and uh, Sarah uh, earned a little fling. Uh, and um, and I think if Marie and and Antoine wanna uh, have a little affair, uh, you know, neither of them, owes big to anyone else right now. And this is what, you know, revolutionary movements are for. If you can't <laughs> have a little affair with somebody who's age inappropriate for you when you're uncommitted uh, in this situation, or if your wife is Hortense, which is even worse than being uncommitted, uh, what good <laughs> is a Nazi occupation? Uh, okay, well, good. Uh, I mean, I like mostly agree with that ish. Um, I like, I still find the Daniel Sarah thing, but whatever, fine. Be happy people. Um, okay. So speaking, but speaking of unhappy relationships. So early in, uh, the first of our pair of episodes tonight, I believe we were on, we did seven and eight, um, tonight. I should have looked at that more closely, but, uh, if you recall at the end of the last episode, Hortense had gone to Chasania to get uh, the morphine in which he had uh, basically, I think she had, you know, he made her pay for with sex of some kind. Uh, and uh, Muller has caught her in this lie. She says she got it from Daniel. Uh, and so he kind of early in this, uh, I think the seventh episode, sits her down and says he's going to paint her portrait. And then he's kind of like, but he's like interrogating her. Like he's got his interrogation posture um, going and he kind of catches her in the lie. And then uh, he, he says he's going to paint her. So he's got a paintbrush. So he kind of like paints her mouth red around it. So she has this, it's like this ritual and humiliation. Wait, just to be clear, he paints with the oil paints on her actual face. Face, Her yes. mouth red, yeah. It's yeah. a it's a power move. So it's meant to humiliate uh, and and uh, and intimidate, which it does. I gotta say though, uh, not like I'm expecting Mueller to behave like a decent person at all. I guess, but like she just did this whole thing for him, uh, and it seemed I a thought point his reaction she makes to him. By the way, yeah, but and so I thought his reaction was. I understand he does not like the idea of being in debt of any kind to Chassan, Chassanye, uh, Chassanya. Uh, but it seemed like a weird reaction from him in my book. What did you think? It's very Muller, right? He, um, first of all, 
It's been a few days since he's humiliated her. He's in debt not just to Shasan, but to her. Um, and that's uncomfortable for him. You know, he's got the back pain and the, you know, he's a morphine addict and he's dependent upon her. And now he finds out Shasan for the, um, for the drugs. And, you know, he's... You know, torturing people in cells is, you know, it's like morphine. You know, if you if you don't do it for what you have to up the ante to to keep the thrill going. Um, and um, so, look, I mean, he his relationship with her is built around um, some combination of, you know, horrid people attraction and terrorizing her. He remember he has tortured her in the presence of her husband and then uh you know did that thing in the restaurant i don't even know what to call that psychological torture of some kind uh so it is a a cycle of their relationship right that you know she gives up things for him and he tortures her in response um uh, i guess i wasn't too surprised by it yeah i don't i mean Whatever. I thought they were getting along. They seemed like what in a good place. What does she see in him? What does she see in this guy? Uh, and this causes Hortense, of course. Don't to, date Nazis, members of the it's audience. Just like life it lessons. just never works out well. Yep, life lessons. Uh, so so this, calls her, this causes her to do something that I thought was pretty interesting, which is call her mother, right? So she can't go back. Daniel has been, she finds out from Mola that the reason her lie doesn't hold water is because Daniel has been kidnapped uh, and is being held, arrested, they think, but you know, we know where he's being held. So she's now her, you know, normally what she does, right, is she toggles between these two men as some sort of pr- pr- for protection. She can always go back to Daniel. She feels like if she really needs to. Um, so Daniel's gone. And so, and Mueller won't have her. So now she calls her mother. And uh, we hear, and it's it, the reason that the mother call is interesting to me is that it reminds me of just how little backstory we have on so many of these people. Uh, because you're like, oh yeah, like she's got, oh she's got a living mother somewhere, uh, and the and and her father is apparently still alive too, and um, and her mother. This is going to shock you. Sounds like a terrible human being. Yeah, her mother's as horrible as she is. Yeah. <laughs> the apple did not fall far from the tree. She has this kind of like, ugh, why would why why should I see like no interest in seeing her daughter, no interest in helping her out, uh, and I, I couldn't. It was difficult. Like you can't. I don't know what the relationship is there other than not good. Yeah, and you don't learn in this, at least in these couple episodes, more than that. We have two phone conversations with the mother. Uh, This is precipitated by Mueller throwing her out, and so she has to figure out where she's going to live. And so she calls her mother, which is clearly a difficult thing for her to do. Um, And then... Uh, her mother gives her this quite abusive rant, um, but permits her to to come to her. Uh, and um, the phone call ends with her mother saying, 
don't expect a feast, and Hortense responding, I don't expect anything, yeah. um, which is a good exchange. But then, of course, uh, she doesn't actually get on the train and come to her mother, um, which is a half an hour away. She doesn't do it because uh, she goes back to the house, her house, to pick some things up, and she finds uh, Gustave and Tequiero, um, who have been hiding out in the house hungry ever since uh, Danielle was uh, uh, kidnapped and Sarah and Ezekiel were arrested. And so then you have uh, a subsequent phone conversation with her mother in which her mother basically says, you can bring uh, uh, your son, Aitikiero, but you can't bring Gustave because he's Danielle, uh, because he's Marcel's son and he's a commie. And, you know, Hortense uh, does seem to have a little bit of affection for Gustave and in any event is not a uh, horrible woman, though she is, is not going to leave the kid alone in, in the house. He's 11 or 12 or whatever he is. And um, so she then, in one of her occasional good moments, uh, chews out her mom and tells her what she thinks of her on the phone um, and hangs up on her, all to Gustav uh, looking quite astonished uh, uh, from sitting on the stairs. Yeah. Um, I will say, you know, I don't, I'm not certain how many days have passed at this point since, like, the house got raided. Like, it, it might actually only be two. Uh, it might not, the time lapse might not be that long. But, of course, you're aware that these kids have, like, walked from, what, Moisse to uh, Villeneuve, which must be, it's miles, right? It's like seven miles or something. It's something far for kids, especially. Um, they're starving. And it's just, you, Hortense shows up and you have this mix of like, how much better is this for the kids? <laughs> like, of all the people, like, okay, good. There's an adult with them. But like when he says we're hungry, you know, and, you know, can you buy us some food? And she says, of course. It is unclear actually, does she have money to buy food? Like, does she, does she have an income? She doesn't have an income. So like, uh, Anyway, I'm just not sure, not entirely sure how much how well off they are with Hortense. I prefer Sarah or somebody else. But anyway. I think uh, they are definitely better off. Hortense is nothing if not resourceful. And um, she has never gone hungry in her life and isn't going to. And, um, and you know, if you have to be under somebody's protection as a tiny child, and Takeiro's like three years old. I mean, he's not, um, you know, being under Gustave's protection is not good enough. Um, I would rather they be with their dad um, and Marie, but um, I would take Hortense for this purpose over nothing. Okay, all right. Um, so speaking of our terrible people um, who are, you know, things are not going as well for them, as you note in this episode, uh, Marchetti gets fired. He's he's called in and in front of Servier, Chasson, Chasania, and Muller, uh, 
they, 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 they demote him, I guess. Like they promote some guy over him. They're like, this guy is going to take over uh, now and send him on his way. And so, you know, he's having a tough one. Uh, but when he walks into his uh, apartment, uh, Elian, the young, young girl slave he's got with him, uh, is committing suicide. He walks in what appears to be sort of mid-hanging. Mid-hanging. And it's a weird, it's a weird, um, now their relationship's been weird from the start. It's like never quite clear what's going on there. But like we have this weird exchange rate where he seems panicked about her doing this uh, and, you know, gets her down and says, you can't do this. And then she's sort of talking about this guilt that she feels because she ratted out uh, and, and was, uh, which I guess I, I know I knew, but I, I hadn't internalized as much until the scene happened, how much she was informing on what was happening at the sawmill, that she was the one kind of feeding information to Marchetti and that that, you know, she, the fact that Josephine was dead, she liked Josephine and yet she was informing on her to Marchetti and that led to her death and that guilt is eating her alive. Or at least she perceives in some sense that it was her fault. It's not at all clear. I mean, we actually know the sequence of events that leads to this and has much more to do with Schwartz than it has to do right. with um, with her. Um, uh, but she has a lot of guilt and she probably also has a lot of guilt about Raul, uh, although... You know, that's really uh, uh, um, not stated. But she's a high, you know, she's a very depressive character through this entire period. Um, And she's, you know, she's a, um, you know, like the entire time we've known her in Marquette's apartment, she's kind of a... Uh, a weird combination of depressed and submissive. Um, And it's a, you know, it's the least surprising thing in the world that she is, you know, you've got a suicide attempt here. Um, And of course, Marquette turns around and immediately gets her to inform more on the sawmill, which she then does. Yeah, he does that, though. Like, this is what I mean by it's a weird scene, because in this scene, so he gets her down, and he's, you know, telling her it's not her fault, it's the war's fault, it's his fault. And then he says, why don't you marry me? And it'll give you the stability. Uh, And he just, after somebody who's been, what I would say has been, like, just, like, low-key abusing her uh, for the last, forever, however long she's been in his apartment, he, he sort of does this, like, I don't know if it's, I'd call it nice, but he's basically like, look, I'm probably going to die. <laughs> You'll get my police pension. You know, being a, police's, a policeman's wife isn't any good, but being a policeman's widow is a pretty good deal. And he seems to like want, he seems, after after not seem, seeming to care about her as a human at all, there is something about her suicide attempt that jolts something in him. He's like, I don't love you, but I like you fine. And like, we should get married and it'll give you like, like his his proposal does seem to be more about her than him. Yeah, I'm incapable of giving Marquette, uh the kind of credit that you're... Um, I, I think he's like... Like, the state has just screwed him. And he's... Um, 
you know, pining for Rita and, uh, you know, his previous sex slave. Um, and so he, uh, he comes home and his current, you know, sex slave and ham soup maker, he does actually say to her, who will make my ham soup if you're dead? Um, which is, I have to say, the worst argument ever against a suicide. Um, <laughs> but, um, okay. Um, he cuts her down. It is not clear to me at all how much of this is affection for her and how much of this is that she's useful in about 10 different ways. She's an informer. She's a housekeeper. She's a sex object. She, you know, acts as a surrogate for Rita, who, and he doesn't have to, you know, care about her feelings at all. Um, uh, she's pretty low maintenance. Um, and she's a great vehicle for screwing the state, which is screwing him, which is, you know, uh, ha-ha, if you, um, if you uh, stay on, i.e. don't kill yourself, then if anything happens to me, you'll be taken care of. Uh, and so, like, I don't have to pay you. The state will take care of it. It's like, a, like an indenture. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know something from future episodes that this uh, relationship grows into something like actual affection. But it seems super transactional. Uh, I get a lot of benefits out of having you around you're really no good to me hanging from the ceiling. And uh, by the way, if anything happens to me, the state will take care of you if I don't. I, it's hardly the romance of the century. <laughs> it's not the romance of the century. Uh, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not standing for Marchetti. I just, uh, I don't know. It is it a weird scene. And honestly, I, I can't remember. Like, you'd be shocked, but there are certain specific things, uh, like we can talk about Lucienne here, because I can, that actually, like, I remember quite well, but there's a whole bunch of things, like, I have no idea. Um, so your guess is as good as mine is how it turns out. Uh, so um, uh, let's talk about Marguerite for a second. Yeah, uh, so tell we me have how our, first, our first uh, revelation of the, well at least one of the mysteries of Marguerite is revealed. Uh, no, she is not a spy working for Muller, but she is a lesbian. Um, and, uh, yeah, oh, um, which is, uh, I, and I have to say, I love these scenes because it blows Lucienne away in a way that, you know, even somebody who's a genuine homophobe today wouldn't be shocked by it the way she is shocked by it. Um, and, you know, she might be disapproving, but they'd, like, heard of it. They'd have words for it. Um, she can't even Inverted. Get, Inverted yeah, she, is the word she uses. She can't get, get herself even to say the words, if she knows the word. Right. Um... um and her uh, her more cosmopolitan husband is uh, just great. Um, he's like this is one of uh, one of uh, his uh, wonderful moments in the show. He just 
kind of represents our more modern sensibilities about it, which is, hey, it's a private, it's her, you know, like, why are you looking under her pillow in the first place? It's no business of ours. But secondly, that, you know, he says at one point it takes all kinds to make a world. He really doesn't seem to mind. Um, and it doesn't seem to be likely to affect his working relationship with her. Um, and this is a matter of some apparent tension between the two of them. And I, I just thought this was a great, a great portrayal of, you know, differing attitudes toward, uh, toward, you know, something that is really high salience in our society, but not high salience in, in their society. Yeah, so I I love everything about this. So first of all, they're having this conversation, right? So there's an air raid. Uh, and so they go to the bomb shelter and Marguerite- And, and hold Lucy, that thought because the air raid itself is significant for other reasons. Okay, well, I would like to, to I, I'll be interested to know that. So, they're, so they're, they're in the bomb shelter and they're just, you know, swapping stories to kill time. And uh, Marguerite ends up telling Lucienne about Camille, which she knows about Camille. Um, but it, it is specifically that Camille was a teacher, was killed in a bomb raid. And it's enough information that uh, Lucienne, and it's sort of sweet, she's she's asking Barry about, because uh, uh, Marguerite is doing a, it's a very, very typical move uh, for the closeted. She is telling Lucienne the truth about the person that she was in love with, down, right down to the name. The only thing she has done is swap the gender. She says he, as she's talking about this. And so Lucienne, not trying to break confidence, um, just is kind of trying to understand from Barrio, who has information. He's just been to some conference where they talked about, they did a, a little ceremony uh, honoring the teachers who'd been killed in air raids. And she says, oh, um, you know, Marguerite had a, teacher friend who was, you know, uh, and says it was a man and whatever. And he's like, yeah, I don't, there wasn't anybody. He's like, there was a woman over in one of the schools and Lucienne gets suspicious enough that she's, and Lucienne is really uh, just a, this is a reminder that, uh, you know, boundaryless. She breaks into, <laughs> breaks into poor Marguerite's room, looks through her stuff under her pillow that she's told so Marguerite's told her that's where she keeps a picture of him. Uh, she finds it kind of in the bedside and sees that it's a woman. Although I gotta say, it took me the first, I remember the first time I watched this and I did it again the second time where I was like trying to see if I could zoom in on a picture. Cause I looked at the picture and I it did not, it was not clear to me. I was pretty sure it was a woman, but like it's not obvious from that picture that it's a woman. Yeah, I did not pick up that the picture was a picture of a woman, but Lucienne certainly did. Yeah, so I like paused it and looked, and like the one thing that really gives because it, first of all, part of it is it's dark; it's just, you just can't see it that well. The other part is like, I guess it looks like the way I would imagine, almost like a an Amelia Earhart kind of to look. Like it's just like wearing a lot of clothes, but if you look at the shoes, the shoes have a strap on them that I think is probably the most distinctly female thing about it. Anyway, so it's not clear that it's a woman. Lucienne's reaction. Very much, uh, though, makes it clear that it is something, something dangerous like that. 
Uh, so you're pretty, I was pretty sure I remember the first time I saw it, like, okay, this is a woman. Uh, but, but Lucienne's, um, just unbelievable reaction, right? So she goes and she goes out to the play yard and Marguerite is like hugging a little girl because she's gotten in a fight with some other little girl, uh, over a doll and like Marie, like what's not Marie, sorry, Lucienne. What's amazing about her reaction is that it is both it is both specific to Lucienne in her weird, I am, I am so sheltered that like I am that I'm so shocked that this even like exists in the universe. Uh, and that I'm angry about it, that I feel like personally betrayed. And like she's probably a pedophile because I don't know anything about this, but I just know it's so inverted slash perverted, as I think what she means, uh, that you couldn't possibly allow this person around children. Um, and so she has this like, yeah, this, this like sheltered and intense reaction, but it's also, also, and, and Barry Oates reaction bears this out. Uh, now I would say he's probably on a very different side of a, of a spectrum on this, but the, the reaction is the kind of reaction I would say that is like, it's too intense to not note that like something more is probably going on there. Especially because she was flirting with Marguerite only the previous night and dragging Barrio up to the bedroom. And I mean, they were being pretty playful with each other. Yes. And I would say that there is, this is something that uh, when somebody is uh, either deeply closeted or their own emotions scare them in a certain way, uh, that this kind of totally unhinged overreaction uh, is that's the kind of thing you might expect to see actually from somebody who's like, that's why, that's why it's like, it is, you know, many of the preachers uh, and other people who spend all their time preaching fire and brimstone sort of obsessively about homosexuality turn out to actually be gay because there's just something about when you go so far, like, uh, that you have to wonder about. So anyway, that, that's what I read into uh, Lucienne's reaction here. So a couple of notes about things that are taking place while this is going on. There, uh, while Camille is telling, uh, while uh, Marguerite is telling Lucienne the story of Camille, they are hiding in the basement because there's an air raid going on. And uh, a note on this air raid, uh, this is, um, so people forget this because France was one of the allies, but during the period of the occupation, there were a lot of allied air raids over France. And these were targeted uh, both uh, at German soldiers uh, who were uh, particularly in Normandy, um, uh, and particularly in 1944, the period of uh, the, the, you know, leading up to D-Day. Um, but uh, uh, there was also a lot of French industry, um, and this appears to be in the show, one of the industrial air raids. It's even explicitly discussed. Uh, and the timing of this is... Um, uh, is interesting. So Wikipedia, uh, in a very useful little article entitled Bombing of France During World War II, 
uh, has a list of the deadliest Allied air raids over occupied France. Uh, And uh, there are a few um, before 1943. Um, uh, There are two listed in uh, 1942, both. uh, But uh, they pick up in earnest in this period of 1943. Remember, we're in September 43, and uh, all but four of these deadliest Allied air raids start in the period of September 43 and then accelerate into uh, 1944. Uh, And so this sense that is depicted in the show that... um, there were, you know, that this was starting to happen and was happening more and more. Um, and they, you know, Lucien sort of clucks that they're, they're supposed to be liberating us, but they're bombing us, that there's still something sort of novel about this um, is actually right. Uh, this is the period in which the uh, uh, allies are getting ready to invade France, uh, and they are taking out a lot of German uh, uh, industrial positions, really French industrial, collaborationist industrial positions. Um, and so, and this then accelerates into uh, the period around D-Day uh, when, of course, they land and actually it continues after D-Day. Um, and so again, the show is sort of weaving in actual historical events. And there are very large numbers of French civilian casualties um, from um, uh, um, from Allied air raids during, during the war. I mean, t- many, many tens of thousands. Um, and so this, you know, when Berriot and Lucien are talking about French teachers, who could, who could uh, Marguerite be referring to? Um, uh, this is actually quite accurate. There were, you know, like it's a largely forgotten aspect of the war, but, you know, if you're going to take the country of France back from the Nazis with 1940s technology, you're going to drop a lot of bombs and a lot of bombs are going to kill a lot of people. Uh, And so that is, again, one of these, uh, you know, historical uh, things that the show gets exactly right. This is the period in which, you know, uh, Marguerite's girlfriend would be killed relatively nearby and then they might be hiding in a basement because there are planes on the way to take out an industrial facility. Which, by the way, just to bring up once again, one of my favorite World War II movies, uh, which is uh, Memphis Bell, the whole the whole situation that's happening in that movie is that they have, a, they have some factory or facility they're trying to bomb and it is very close to a school and there is like the the fight that they're having on the plane is people is part of them crew is just like just unload the bombs and there's another section on the plane of people who are like that is a school and like something else like a church you know is near and like they have to put their own lives at risk to make sure they bomb the right place knowing that if they just unload them like they will kill a bunch of civilians anyway just another plug for that movie there uh so uh, so let's go back to the, the the big exciting thing that's happening though is is our um, 
is our jailbreak. And uh, and and like I said before, the reason I couldn't quite remember it as a jailbreak is I have an image in my head of a jailbreak as, you know, attaching uh, something to a wall of the jail and then like, you know, having a truck that like pulls part of the wall off or something more modern. I couldn't remember, but it is actually that the, the prisoners are being transported and they have what is not a terrible plan of we're going to show up and give them a gun. Like we can't break them out, but what we can do is like sneak them a weapon and sh- they have to use Schwartz because they need somebody who can get into the HQ uh, and actually have a reason to be there. And so Antoine has to go to Schwartz, and this is really the first time they've seen each other since, um, you know, Antoine's sister, Schwartz's wife, is dead, and they have some weird prune brandy and a conversation. Um, you know, Marie doesn't want uh, Schwartz to know that she's involved because she thinks he won't do it. Uh, but ultimately, what's what is this is the moment. Uh, that Schwartz changes from collaborator to resistance member. And he, there's, you know, the way he's sort of sitting, he's kind of, he's got like a, he's got a sad beard, a morning beard, you know. Um, he looks kind of like thick and um, and defeated. And, you know, when Antoine comes, he sort of says no, but like eventually he just, it doesn't take that much of the prune brandy, which apparently tastes very bad, uh, to decide that he's going to go help the resistance do this. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is another one of Schwartz's great moments. Uh, he's a thoroughly corrupt individual, but he doesn't seem to be able to say no to Marie or to adventure. Um, and uh, he fashions himself a soulless businessman, but in fact, he has a little bit of a soul that comes out every now and then. Um, uh, So I know that people are going to say this jailbreak scene is unrealistic. Um, And, you know, you can't escape from Nazi uh, headquarters. Um, and so I just, I think I read a little bit or talked a little bit about this on one of the earlier episodes, but I just want to read a little excerpt from a New York Times obituary of a uh, uh, saboteur during the war named Robert de la Rochefoucauld, uh, who is in fact, yes, a direct lineal descendant of the author of the 17th century Maxims. Um, And uh, this is my favorite obituary in the history of the New York Times. Um, uh, uh, So this is after uh, the the saboteur is captured and uh, condemned to death by the Nazis uh, at Avalon. While being taken for execution, he jumped from the back of his captor's truck dodged bullets and then ran through nearby streets, winding up outside a German headquarters where he spotted a limousine flying a swastika flag, its driver nearby, the keys in the ignition. He drove off in the car and then caught a train to Paris hiding in one of its bathrooms. When we arrived in Paris, I felt drunk with freedom, the Telegraph quoted him as saying. The SOE later evacuated him to England by submarine, 
But in May 1944, he parachuted back into France. Dressed as a workman, he smuggled explosives into a huge German munitions plant near Bordeaux, hiding them in the hollowed-out loaves of bread. He then set off the explosives on May 20th and fled on a bicycle, but was caught by the Germans once more. In his cell, he feigned an epileptic seizure, and when a guard opened the door, Count de la Rochefoucauld hit him over the head with a table leg and broke his neck. He took the guard's uniform and pistol, shot two other guards, and escaped. So, if you think the escape scene in this uh, 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 portrayal of occupied France is extravagant, just remember there is a New York Times obituary of uh, Count Robert de la Rochefoucauld, which puts it to shame for escape daring do. Uh, well, so I will say it's not that I thought that it was unrealistic. So here's how I felt about it. So the way that they structure the episodes is that they, so Schwartz and Antoine are sitting in the HQ. Schwartz has concocted a lie to, to, to get them to sit there while the Prisoners are being brought through. Prisoners come in. They don't have any pockets. So they can't, their, their original plan was like, we're going to, Antoine was going to bump into Anselm accidentally and drop a gun into his pocket. Uh, no one's got any pockets. So uh, they, they're on to plan B, which is that uh, when the commander comes down while the prisoners are there to say, we don't have an appointment today, Mr. Schwartz, Antoine just takes his gun and starts shooting everybody. Um, and they do this kind of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of ending uh, on that episode with the, like them saying, we're never going to get out of here. And like, it kind of ends. Uh, and then it picks up in the next episode and like, they don't show you how they got out. Like they're just out. They're in the, they're, they're in the woods and they're Antoine's being thrown in the air, uh, in a, for he's a jolly good fellow kind of way. And we learn, um, in the discussion that Marcel has somehow sacrificed himself, uh, to get them out of there. It's a bit of a dodge on their part. Um, however, you know, he had eight, we know he had eight bullets. He shot a lot of people. So, uh, you know, the, I, I guess it's, it's plausible. Uh, and it's not an American show. In an American show, we would focus on the shootout, getting <laughs> them out. Like, we, you would know where every splatter of blood landed in uh, German HQ. But this is a French show, so we're much more interested in uh, the characters um, and, you know, the uh, celebratory uh, uh, gestures in the woods. Well, let me, but let me bring up something that I think is interesting or, or strange about the, going back to Eliane. So Marchetti has asked her to marry him in the most unromantic way possible. And uh, so she goes to get her birth certificate, which is at the sawmill because she's an employee there. Now we know that she's just trying to kill herself because she feels guilty about Josephine, Antoine's sister. She gets there. She sees Schwartz. She sees Antoine. She sees that they're looking at the plans for the Nazi HQ, which uh, which Schwartz has because he helped build part of it with his, you know, at the sawmill or something. And uh, she immediately goes back to Marchetti and rats them out. Uh, and so, but I have two questions about this. One is, okay, so she's just hanging herself because she feels so guilty, but now she's, I guess, because she's betrothed to Marchetti, she's just spying for him again, fine, even though she, we know she likes Antoine, she likes Schwartz. Uh, but the other thing is, is that that information 
doesn't appear to be used. Like, they still go, like, it's not like Marchetti tipped anybody off. Uh, and and it doesn't, it, the information actually doesn't end up playing a role in the breakout. Yeah, Marchetti is, uh, uh, look, his former colleague, Lorio is now um, uh, hanging out with the resistance people in the woods. Uh, and he has been replaced by somebody who, uh, whose, you know, anti-nationalist fervor is greater than his. And, uh, you know, so he has some useful information and he doesn't really do anything with it. Um, uh, I don't know whether that reflects just job dissatisfaction on his part or a kind of turning of the tide, um, as we see with some other characters, which we should talk about, who are now, uh, you know, playing both sides a little and not being quite as uh, 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 committed to the uh, the Petanist uh, uh, regime as they were a few episodes ago. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Um, and so now, like, almost all of our heroes, with the exception of Marcel, who's being tortured, who's being who's been thrown back in a cell, uh, all of yeah, our heroes— Yeah, things are not going so well for the Larche brothers. Bad for Marcel, yeah. So, so um, uh, the, the, the but, but all our heroes are in the woods now. Schwartz is there, too. And so, um, you know, and now they're trying to figure out how could they possibly get Marcel out— um, and Schwartz, again, comes to the rescue with the idea of, like, I can sell the sawmill. We get some money. Daniel's there at this point and says, you know, there's a judge I know. Potentially we could bribe him to just get Marcel forced labor, but we need money. So Schwartz offers to sell the mill. Uh, he goes to Janine um, and is like, give me $300,000 for the sawmill. Or he just says, pay me something. She says, I'll give you 200000 but... You have to count this. So, so this is this isn't this is to me a very interesting shift uh, and and just a fascinating part of these episodes, which is the there's a dinner between Chisanya, uh, uh, Janine, Servier, and his wife, and Servier's wife is saying lots of the companies in the village are now paying um, the resistance attacks, and it's basically to work off their collaboration from earlier in the war because the tide has turned enough that they are seeing which way the wind is blowing. And so they know that the French resistance are going to be the ones to prosecute justice ultimately. And so they've they've started to pay this tax to them to support the effort. Um, and Janine is like floored by this. And it's her, it's an amazing kind of reaction because now she's trying to figure out like, oh, well, if there's a way to buy off our collaboration, like we got to cover this base. And so for the $200,000 that she's offering for the sawmill, uh, she's saying, I want it to count as my support for the resistance. You've got to count this, uh, which actually causes our heroes in the woods, our resistance members, to debate whether or not it was okay to take this dirty money. They don't want to allow her to assuage her guilt and ultimately decide that, uh, what is it? She only gets, she only, wait, she what is She only it? gets credit for it if she also spies. She also spies, that's and right. And if she is prepared to uh, 
provide a lot of information about what the concrete factory, which is now much more important than the sawmill, is uh, doing. That's right. And it's 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 just, it's like fun to watch Janine, like in her new posture as a, literally I'm married. Like she tries to sort of raise it to Chisanya, like, shouldn't we maybe be playing, like, shouldn't we be hedging on this a little bit? And, uh, and but he's he, a little too much of a fanatic. He's for a that. true believer, like, for all his faults. He's uh, an actual fascist. That's right. And he, and he's also still of the opinion that if they just get tougher, they're going to win this war. Um, and she is smarter than he is and sees that, like, okay, things are changing and I got to figure out how to get in on this. Um, so, uh, so, so they, but they, presumably uh, decide to take the money. Um, now, Marcel is in this prison cell, and a guy comes in with it. So part, one of the things that's happening now is we the, the prison cells become Wait, a... Wait, before we switch oh, to yeah, Marcel, um, a note on this. Um, and I'm going to do a little bit of research in the coming week about how accurate the resistance tax on businesses as a way of you know, showing that you weren't uh, a actually committed to collaboration is this is something I had not heard of uh, and whether uh, I suspect it's probably true just because the show tends to get a lot of details right. Um, but I, I'm, it was new to me. Um, but what is certainly accurate about this is the number of French elites from lots of different schools, spheres of life that had a foot in both camps and particularly shifted the weight of those feet uh, over as the tides of war changed. Um, and so there were a lot of people who were Petanist early in the war and resistance later in the war and there were debates, you know, after the war in France about how to think about those people. Was it reasonable to be a collaborationist in 1940 and 41? And then, you know, as it became clear, particularly in 42, that this government had no capacity to restrain the Germans and only capacity to implicate French in their atrocities, that you know, which happened to coincide with the period in which the war was uh, increasingly obviously lost and so that you were better off being allied with the Gaullists. Um, so the variables are somewhat overdetermined in terms of how people behaved. There were also a lot of people uh, who both collaborated and provided information to the resistance. And whether that was ass covering or, you know, people needed to, uh, uh, did what they needed to do. The Larches, for example, you know, Larche needs to help the Germans figure out who should be on the uh, 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 hostage list, um, but also hides people, right? Those are, that stuff happened. And, you know, people did play both sides, both for self-interested reasons like Janine, but also for ethical and moral reasons 
uh, as you've described of Larche, he can have lots of bad political opinions and and bad instincts about big themes. But then when you have a choice in front of him about how to behave toward an individual, often uh, ch tends to choose the right thing. And so there's like a thousand reasons why people had feet in both camps. And the portrayal of Janine here is a portrayal of one of the most corrupt ones. But the other reasons, you know, after the war sorting out who was doing things for corrupt reasons, who were the Serviers, who were the Larches, who were the Schwartzes, who were the Janines, who were the Luciennes, right, who's married to a resistance figure who's really quite heroic, but is also, was also sleeping with a German soldier. Um, you know, those are questions that, you know, we're about a year and a half off from addressing full force. And I think one of the things the show is setting up is how lots of people have lots of different arguments about what they were, what their real story is. And I'm really interested in 44, 45, how, how the show depicts what's Janine, you know, Janine's story is pretty freaking easy, actually. Um, but she's not going to make it easy. She plays this card in order to give herself an argument, right? Um, uh, how is the, how are people going to respond to the different arguments that different people have to make? Yeah. Uh, I, I love, I love this, uh, for Janine. This is like classic. This is like such a good depiction of exactly who this person would be. But you know, you're right. Cause we've seen somebody like Anselm, for example, who's full resistance, but who was collaborating for the purposes of cover so he could be in the resistance. And I do watch this stuff, and, and I'll, I will say you're certainly correct that for me, like, the best part of the show is that it does take us through the part where, like, of judgment. Like, I, without spoiling anything, like, we are watching how people make decisions right now, and eventually there will be judgment, and I think it's going to be interesting to assess how close justice comes for how people actually behaved um, and the show is showing us the tremendous complexity that exists in how people behaved. Although you're right, um, Janine's is pretty, is, is she's straightforward to us. But how straightforward is it to people who are going to pass judgment when she gave $200,000 to the resistance? And uh, agreed to start. And agreed to spy. To, to spy and presumably over the next uh, the show wouldn't set this up were she not then going to provide information that was valuable. And and how different to somebody who comes and looks, hasn't doesn't have all the information we have, but looks, how different is a Janine from a Schwartz, from a Daniel? And I think that is to me, when I talk about it being a meditation on complicity, like we as the audience get to make those judgments in ways that are much more perfect than the people who will ultimately judge them um, because we have a lot more information. But uh, but it is it is really fascinating. I, I just, I love this like a very explicit Janine trying to figure out how to play both sides. Um, one thing I love just slightly less uh, because it's, it's such a, uh, 
whatever, a, a device of drama is that the they're sort of setting up the the cell that Marcel is in. Uh, we've already, we've seen many of our characters now come together in the cell. Now we've got a new person coming in. And of course that person's not just a stranger. It is, uh, as we learn, as he tells his story, Tequiero's father, uh, who we have seen earlier, who is talking about the fact that a doctor in Villeneuve stole his baby when his wife died in childbirth. Um, and the the guy is talking about sort of he wanted one thing he'd really love to know. He's asking Marcel about his kid and being a father, and Marcel's talking to him. Marcel becomes aware pretty quick, quickly that this is his nephew that they're talking about, and this is his brother who is the doctor. And the prisoner, Takiero's father, biological father, is saying. I just really, I just thought it was a girl. It's weird to, weird to not know whether it's a boy or a girl. And I had forgotten, I was sitting there again being like, Marcel is going to tell this guy before he's executed that he has a son, right? And he doesn't. And I hate that. <laughs> so I think in Marcel's defense, he has just been tortured at great length by somebody who, for whom Muller is a wuss. I mean, there's actually a scene here in which this new torturer comes in and tells a Muller he's been hanging out with French women too much and it's made him soft. Um, and so, like, and so Mar Marcel has just spent quality time with, you know, a guy who's, like, you know, who's you know, out Mullering Muller. And um, he is um, uh, in enormous agony in this cell. And he does not know that this guy is, that the knock on the door where uh, Tequero Pear is going to get shot in the uh, next door uh, is about to happen. Um, and uh, so I do think uh, poor Marcel has some extenuating circumstances here. <laughs> uh, I agree. No, I, I understand. I just, I mean, I don't know. Rat-ass commie though he may be. Yeah, I don't know. I do think, I do think it was relatively evident that uh, Take Yara's dad was about to get shot. I mean, I just wanted Marcel to like call out, it was a boy. He's being well taken care of. Like, Jesus, I just like wanted Takiro's dad to have that. Yeah, uh -huh. I actually, something else about this scene bothered me, which was, um, uh, and because I'm not as good a person as you are, I wasn't thinking about Takiro's dad. Here I was thinking about Danielle, um, who in the telling of the story, and I totally understand why Takiro's dad, he doesn't know that Danielle was actually uninvolved in getting him uh, locked up and stealing the baby. Uh, well, the story that gets transmitted to Marcel is one in which Danielle is involved in the baby theft. And Danielle has many things to answer for uh, in life, um, but the baby theft actually isn't one of them. He does not know that the baby's father has shown up Yes, he um, does. He he eventually learns that. Yeah, but after after it's all done and the guy's been shipped away, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was not involved in 
when he agrees to take the baby, he thinks he's saving the baby from being sent to an institutional orphanage during the war. And the deal to send the dad to the concentration camp to, and steal the baby from the dad is a matter between Hortense and Marquetti. Right. right. That it, no, that's true. Daniel does eventually find out about it, and now I can't. I can't remember uh, like exactly, but I feel like I remember thinking like this is an imperfect. Like he tolerates, certainly continues to tolerate Hortense. Like like the extent, the number of unforgivable things. This is her original sin of the show, but it is in itself severable. <laughs> like the idea that there is a relationship post this uh, is crazy. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I just... One, I, yeah, one more ahead. thing we got to talk about before we close, which is the brothers Larche uh, have another setback while Marcel is listening to Takero's dad getting shot and uh, eyeing a cockroach, uh, who, of course, is a reference to the previous episode's uh, trial of the cockroach with other people who have now been shot and escaped. Um Danielle returns to the house in Moisy, uh, where he expects to find Sarah and Ezekiel. Maybe Ezekiel he expects to be gone because he's thrown him out. Um, and uh, the two boys, and he finds the house empty and ransacked, his birthday present and the remains of the cake. And then he is arrested by the gendarme who uh, have previously arrested the Jews in the house. Uh, and um, and the, that is his face mashed against the table is where we turn, get where he turns into a postcard. So things are looking pretty grim for the Larche brothers. Yeah, but I would say I would say if we've learned one thing narratively, it's possible that we're about to see the brothers get reunited. Uh, because apparently there's only one cell at this jail <laughs> that like parades through, you know, uh, a series of characters. But we'll also, see. Also, it's that the story cannot tolerate the. We can eliminate many characters, but the Larche brothers survive because ultimately the story, the fundamental story, is about the Larche brothers and Marie. Um, everybody, you know, and and Berio and Lucien, but. These are the central characters. They are surviving the war. Okay, we'll have to see whether or not that holds up. I thought you were going to say we can't go without talking about uh, Terry losing his role in the play to Marie, the real-life girl. I hate uh, the play. I'm so the against <laughs> the play. I just don't. This is, so I will say, like, the stupidest part of this episode is where all of the resistance leaders get together and they're trying to come up with, like, what are we going to do symbolically that's going to make a real difference on November 11th? And where, how do we sing, you know, Marseille, Le Marseille or whatever? And, like, they're, the big idea is that Claude's like, we'll do the play and this will be our massive act of resistance. And they're all like, great. Great idea. <laughs> I know. <laughs> The play's the thing, The play's the say. thing. That went through my head multiple times yeah. uh, during this episode. Uh, this is dumb. <laughs> and um, and by the way, I, I have never been a big Antoine fan, um, but the only person who's able to call out this whole thing where they're talking about these piddly little, you know, symbolic resistance shit 
And Antoine says, excuse me, but these are all terrible ideas. Well, what's funny to me is this happens, I think, twice in these episodes. Where I, and I don't know if it's been happening more. I just noticed it. Where, like, I don't know what the French translation is for the word suck. But what he says is he's like, these ideas suck is, the, is like the translation they give you. Uh, so that's great. It's great. Yeah, uh, it's and- good. Um, the play sucks. The <laughs> idea that the play is going to be your massive act of resistance sucks. The fact that, uh, you know, uh, uh, this poor kid who's dumb and has been, um, you know, he's playing. Been kissing, he's been kissing boys in service to theater. To which- service to theater and resistance <laughs> for weeks. And he gets yanked at the last minute so that, uh, so that um, there can be an actual female lead who the male lead who's Antoine just happens to want to kiss. Um, I'm sorry. It's uh, this is this is the lo- a low moment for the show's screenwriters. I just if you're gonna do the you know the remake, drop the whole play thing. It, it just it's not good. Uh, I agree. I agree. Uh, okay, great episode. Really fun. Uh, we'll be back next week. Ben, Edith, take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement, comme t'aimes tous les...